is essentially walking through the various one another's of Scripture. And by that, you know what I mean? Um, the various commands that were given in Scripture to love one another, to bear with one another, to encourage one another, uh, to be hospitable to one another, just kind of walking through the various one another's of Scripture as they're organized and summarized in what is known as a church covenant. Now, anybody who's here last week, anybody have a brief definition of what a covenant is? Somebody do it in one word. A promise. Good job. Somebody want to expand upon that? What about this promise? Is there anything else involved in a covenant that we would say there's these elements to it? Okay, so there's, if you didn't hear Tom, there's, uh, there's terms or there's uh, conditions as well. And the promise is usually also uh, ratified by an oath. So the most simple form, when you hear covenant, think promise. And then when you look at the promises in scriptures, you'll see that those promises usually contain an oath. And that the promise has uh, specific uh, directives as to who it's between. And so we're thinking about a church covenant, promises that we're making to one another, and we said last week, the promises that we make to one another really only have validity and really only mean anything because a church covenant is in reflection of and because of God's covenant to us. As we are members of the new covenant, saved by grace through faith, brought into the family of God, that's what God has done, and we are the recipients and the beneficiaries of being in that covenant, because we are members of the new covenant, then we turn towards one another as members of Christ's body, and we say, this is how I'm going to relate to you. And so one thing that we said last week that you might find helpful, if we remember um, that a church covenant is often just then the summary of promises that we make to one another as directed by Scripture. And so we think of it like this, if a church confession summarizes what a church believes... A church covenant summarizes how a church relates to one another. And so why we're talking about this is really important. Because we stressed last week that Christianity is a corporate matter. Christianity is personal and that God saves individuals, but it's not private. God saves us into a people. God saves us into a new community. God saves us into the church. And so what we were saying is that relationships require commitments in order to be valuable and to grow. And so underneath all of this of what we're thinking through is that Christianity is a corporate matter, and because of that, the Christian life can only be realized in relationship to one another. Otherwise, what do I do with all these commands and teachings to bear with one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to exhort one another? Who are the others unless it's defined and worked out? And that's why we're saying churches historically have sought to teach one another and get our hands around those promises through something called a church covenant. And so on the back page of your handout, that's what you'll find is a historic church covenant that goes back to the late 1800s based upon the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith. It's been adopted by hundreds upon hundreds of churches. It's been ratified or tweaked just in minor ways over the years. But in present day, 
there are over thousands of churches that look to this and say, hey, this is a helpful summary of what it means to be a member of this church. So part of our purpose in going through this is not just clarifying what all of this means, but also, Lord willing, as your elders, we'd like to recommend this to our membership in the near future, is adopting it as just a helpful summary as we teach one another and love with one another and bring new members in and clarify what it means to be a member of Christ's body. Welcome for those of you just joining in. If you didn't get one, they may be gone, but there's some of these handouts there on the back wall file that you'll need. So that's where we were last week, and we kind of gave an overview. And so what we're going to do starting today and moving forward is basically dive in to the various promises uh, that are contained in this church covenant. And we did this last week, but just by way of refresher, if you want to turn to page four, and let me read through the covenant. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, And having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on His gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may be at any time under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by pure and loving example seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness, and endeavored with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek, by divine aid, to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there's on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. So that is in essence what we're talking about, is a summary of the various commitments that the scriptures call Christians to, to commit to one another as they're working out their discipleship within a particular local church. And so what I want to do today is just consider this first promise the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's that second paragraph there. And you'll see uh, in italics and in parentheses each of those scripture references that kind of give merit as to why the framers of this covenant said, hey, this is a good summary of what scripture teaches. And as you'll recognize, this first promise is essentially copy and paste of Ephesians 4.3. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let's just turn over to Ephesians 4. And what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through that scripture that gives credence to why we would promise such a thing and what that might look like as a church seeks to live it out. 
What we'll do is we'll just kind of walk through each of these three verses, considering each of them in part, and then seek to make some application discussion along the way as to how this fits together. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What I want us to do first is think about essentially what it says there in verse 1 and consider how that helps us see the calling that defines us. Ephesians 4, if you're familiar with the book, you'll know it marks this distinct transition within Paul's letter where his, his concern turns towards these Ephesians Christians walking in a manner worthy of, as he just said, the calling with which they've been called. So in essence, chapters 1 through 3 is unpacking that calling, and now 4 through 6 applying that calling. And so it's a pivotal moment in the book. And as you read through the flow of the letter, it's really clear that what's on Paul's mind is this new community that God is gathering. It's not so much individual Christianity, but corporate Christianity and what God is doing to gather a new people. Uh, for example, if you still have your, your Bible open, turn back to chapter 2. Um, start in verse 17. Or in this whole section, he's making this point, and Paul says that he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to you, those who were near. For through him, we both have access into one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also... Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul's going to go on. He's going to talk about this grand mystery of salvation. He's been pointing to explicitly Jew and Gentile reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each other that form this new society that God is gathering for the sake of manifesting His glory to the watching created world. Now, this is one of those things that sounds amazing on paper. Jew and Gentile, neither slave nor free, male nor female, one in Christ. It sounds very like much of a, a rallying speech. But in practice, it is so difficult to live out. I don't think there's any way to communicate the challenge of what was happening in the church of Ephesus in our modern day culture. I don't think we have a way to lay hold of not just the differences in race, not just the differences in culture, not just the differences in religion, not just the difference in society and worldview, the extent that all of those things roll together and then say, Mr. Jew, Mr. Gentile, let's worship the Lord. The difference between those two realities is just beyond our ability to lay our hands upon. Just think for a minute, the Jew and the history of being a worshiper of God. Strict dietary laws, monotheistic worship, 
deep cultural traditions, suddenly brought into the same church with Gentile, Ephesus, a Greek culture, plurality of gods, no dietary concerns, had shrines, had idols, saved out of both of those realities, brought into the same congregation. The emphasis of chapter 2 and the concern of chapter 4 becomes very explicit when you begin to peel back the layers and think, what would it be like to be saved out of a Greek culture? What would it be like to be brought in from this Jewish culture and say, hey, you guys are one, get along together. There's massive differences. We have arguments over picnics and refreshments and all of those things, and they're talking about, I can't eat that meat, and saying, why do you care about that meat? It's beyond our ability to comprehend the tension. The book of Acts, it highlights some of that in chapter 15, this friction and how it would be worked out. And so you can imagine, my point, the diversity of what would be happening in this church of Ephesus as they gather to say, we worship the Lord our God. In order for that sort of community to actually exist in a way that is biblical, you can see how there would have to be a high degree of humility, of gentleness, of patience, and love. Now, obviously, even though we're making this point that just the degree that, that those, those differences would be so explicit, we can't fail then to turn around and apply that to our own lives. The reality is true for us today. We might not have the same degree of division that the church of Ephesus would have, but we're certainly a mixed bag. We're not all cut from the same cloth. There are many differences among us in our membership. Therefore, if we're going to work out this calling with which we've been called, it demands that we deal with one another, as Paul exhorts, in gentleness and love, with humility and patience. I'll put it this way. Within this room lie all the seeds necessary for a potential church split. Within this room lie all the seeds necessary for cold shoulders and exclusive cliques and unbiblical behavior. It's imperative, to Paul's point, that we remember first who we are if we're going to figure out how we live. That's where Paul goes first, this calling that we've been called to is the leverage that he uses to then say, live in this way. Do you see that? Before he gives the imperative, live this way, in this manner, he points us to the indicative of the reality of this is the calling with which you've been called. And well, what is that? Well, let's look back. Let's just remind ourselves, go back to Ephesians 1. We're going to kind of work from the bottom and work up. Uh, Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I want you to know the hope to which he has called you to. If you look a little further back up, look at verse 3 in the same chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you wanted to summarize all of what Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, draw a big arrow back to Ephesians 1 and 2 and say, this is the calling. Our redemption by God in Christ through the Spirit. Christian, you've been called to that. That's who we are. And if we're going to think well about unity and have any chance of actually having it, the Scriptures call us first to remember who we are and who we belong to. Because that paradigm is going to set the motivation and the ability for Christians to actually live out this reality. So, he would say, first of all, here in Ephesians 1, as we're considering this idea of unity, we need to remember the calling that defines us. Any questions on what Paul is getting at there, or how this is relating to what we're going to move towards in regards to unity? Pause for a second. Anybody not like unity? All right, good. Circle back around in a few minutes if you think of something else. Let's consider this next section, if you open up to page two. A couple of thoughts. Let's consider how verse two reminds us of the specific conduct that's required of us. Thought of the calling. Let's consider the conduct. For Paul says, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let's state the obvious. It would be pretty easy to seek after, to strive after unity, if it wasn't for the difficult people and the prickly personalities that we rub up against. Unity would be great and easy if everyone thought like us, dressed like us, hobbied like us, vacationed like us, voted like us, loved what we loved, hated what we hate, that'd be the easiest church to be a part of. But the reality is, we know that's not it. We are a mixed bag. We are a diverse group of people. All of those categories have a spectrum of answers and preferences and backgrounds and expectations. And so because of this, we're exhorted to walk together in a particular manner. Let's just consider some of the words that are given to us here. With humility, everyone knows that Christians should be humble, and everyone loves humble people. But humility can only exist when we genuinely consider others better than ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote, that upon meeting a humble person, you'll simply think, and this is very, he wasn't English actually, he was Irish, but it sounds very English. You'll simply think that he seemed 
a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had said to him. Think about what he's saying. The sort of person that you meet, and upon meeting them, you'll recognize they really took an interest in me. They really asked questions about me. I sat down with them. I had a wonderful time. They were genuinely interested in, in, in me. And Lewis's point is that that's something to that is humility. He's picking up on the central theme of humility, that the humble person is genuinely convinced they're not the most important person in the room. And that is going to be seen in the way that they treat one another. But it's not always easy to do because our pride is easily wounded when we realize, oh, I'm not actually the most important person in the room. That hurts. And when we consider the thoughtless and oftentimes unfair conduct of others towards us. A degree of humility is going to be required if a church is going to walk in unity. But not only humility, he couples that with this word gentleness. Have you ever met someone who was overly concerned with the what of the conversation, but neglected the how? Do you know what I mean by that? They were overly concerned at the expense of one to the other. Good content, right information, necessary conversation, the what. But how was it delivered? How was it brought forth? I think gentleness gets at that idea of the how we deliver. Yes, the what. But how am I speaking it? When we walk in gentleness, we will constantly be thinking about how do I speak? How do I respond? How do I text? How do I reply? How do I exhort? How do I rebuke? All of those have some essence of gentleness that need to, they, all of those need to be informed by some essence of gentleness. Think about what we know in scriptures, how gentleness could be said, it's slow to speak and slow to insist upon its rights. By rights, I mean like, that's not what I deserve. I deserve better. How could you speak to me that way? How could they not return that call? I deserve. That's a decent human thing to do. Gentleness is slow to speak and quick to listen. Gentleness is concerned not only with communicating clearly, but communicating faithfully, truthfully, for the benefit of the other, the other person. Walk in humility. Walk in gentleness. But thirdly, he adds this one. Walk in patience. The irony of patience, as we've all figured out, is that it takes patience in order to learn patience. <laughs> you don't magically get patience. The way you learn patience is by having to be patient. It's through difficulty, it's through inconvenience that we learn how to be patient. Uh, Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. That, that same idea. We do this with patience. But then he adds this fourth one, bearing with one another in love. Uh, bearing with, enduring with, sticking alongside. We all know it's one thing to endure, but it's another thing to endure in love. <laughs> and Paul didn't just say, hey, endure with one another. Put up with one another. But he adds the modifier and says, in love. Think of it this way. The bearing with is the distance that we go. 
and the love is the manner in which we do it. That's what Paul's after. Bear with in love. And so this is just another reminder that the sort of covenant relationships that we share in Christ's body, they're not the sort of short weekend passing visits of that crazy uncle that comes, but he's leaving by Sunday so we can endure. What we're called to is actually endure with one another through years, perhaps even decades. Some of you have been in churches for decades, and you know the sweetness that comes with that, but you know the great difficulty that comes in that, because if you come stay at my house for a week, you may or may not enjoy that, but in that time, you're going to pick up on my quirky things, my annoying things. You're going to pick up on all the things that are loathsome. And if you spend five years, 10 years, 20 years with the same people in Christ's body, the things that you first thought were kind of funny and quirky over time become annoying. Bear with one another in love. It's as if Paul knew the reality of what it means to be a part of Christ's body. So as we pursue unity, we're quickly reminded again of our own need for personal sanctification and godliness. The health of this church depends upon the sanctification of its members. If I'm going to be of any help to you as a fellow member, I must be growing in godliness. And my lack of spiritual mindedness will eventually mean my inability to serve you well. And the health of a church is reflective then of the spiritual concern of that church. Therefore, Paul's emphasis upon remember who you are and then walk in this manner. So let's pause for just a second to think about what we're unpacking here in these first two verses. And let's ask a a how question. If humility is essential, and we all love humility, how do we grow in humility? Considering others better than ourselves helps us grow in humility. More important. How does that help us grow in humility? Somebody else add to that. Failure. Katie? How does that help me grow in humility? Okay. And through that, to your point, you're going to learn failure. How's failure help with humility? <laughs> Put that on the testimonial. I'm pro-humility. I fail. I don't know how, but why. What else, Jamie? Okay. I agree with you. Let's press farther. What does our failure expose about us? Daniel.
Very good. Humility shows us who we are and who we're not. Very essential. And, I th and failure exposes that. Yeah. yeah, failure exposes our pride. And what's underneath that, failure helps us grow in humility because it, to what we're saying, to synthesize it, it shows that God is God and we're not. It puts me in my place. It reminds me of the reality of the creator-creature distinction. I am not God. I am not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere at once. I'll fail you in that. I am not all-knowing. There's things that I'll forget. There's things that I'm ignorant of. I am not just and righteous. And so all of those categories, God most certainly is. But when we begin to take those upon ourselves and think that we are those things, we inevitably run up to this reality, I fail at that. And it's humbling, though it shouldn't be, to recognize I'm not the creator, I'm the creature. And so failure can be, isn't always necessarily, but can be helpful to grow in humility because it essentially puts us into our place as to who we are. What else? What other ways can we grow in humility? Yeah, Dan. Uh, I have a desire to do what God says. How so? Okay, good. Looking for just those categories of who is God, who am I, what am I called to? It's going to, in a sense, are you getting at... Um, recalibrate, in a sense, the truth, how the truth is going to conform us to the image of God's Son. Uh, figure out. Yeah. That's good. Putting us under the authority of God's word. Uh, Michelle, asking for forgiveness when you're wrong. How is that humbling? Hypothetically, asking for a friend. <laughs> it is. It's humbling to have to apologize and repent of sin. Because what are we acknowledging in that? That we're wrong. Yeah, that I'm not perfect. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not righteous. I'm not all wise. I'm not God, yeah. Uh, there's somebody else, uh, yeah. Serving other people. Excellent. One more. Ways we can grow in humility. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are good examples of where I can know in my head these things as I read in God's word, you know, to Daniel's point and Dan's point, but as I actually then step in to begin serving, that's going to test the metal of, do I actually believe those things that I know? Because I'm going to be very quickly called upon to consider others better than myself as I begin to serve. Let's move a little further and ask a follow-up question. 
what happens to a church, we'll ask it in two different, from two different vantage points, leadership and members. What happens to a church if only the leadership concerns itself with godly character? Not just humility, but we're thinking about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. What happens if a church takes on the idea of like, yeah, it's the pastor's job. We're here. Nobody would say that. But what would happen theoretically if a church begins to think that only the leadership ought to be concerned with godly character? Uh, Paul. It could die. That's a reality. What else? Bob. Okay. That's a very good observation. We're going to tease that out a little bit in future classes, this distinction between elder rule, elder-led. Eventually, what you're saying is basically just the elders are the ones doing all the work, making it happen. Okay. Uh, Jamie again, and then Tony. Okay, so we're neglecting a big part of scripture of what members are called to do? Yeah. Uh, what were you going to say, Jamie? Um, I was going to say, I, just, I don't think we can do it by itself. Oh. If you're not trying to seek the Lord and the elders are going to do it, like, how are you ever going to get along with anybody? Okay. That's good. Ava. So if you didn't hear what she said, the congregation is the body of Christ, and it destroys the reputation of Christ if the body itself is not considering one another. Very good uh, observation. Was there somebody else? Uh, Tamar. I was just going to say, um, I think the congregation would also get cynical because they can write Yeah. When you said that, I kind of think of the, the armchair quarterback idea. The guy on Twitter who's got all the opinions, all the, everything who knows what coach should have done, everybody who knows, like, you're sitting in your lazy boy, let's be honest. And so that's kind of that same scenario, where if the, if the members themselves aren't taking it upon themselves to recognize the importance of those things, you're kind of sitting back, and it's pretty easy to just to throw pot shots of, like, that's not how I would have handled that. Um, let's look at it from the other side. What happens to a church with humble and gentle members, but its, its leaders now neglect those virtues? It's kind of the same issue, but let's just think about it from that reality. Any difference, any nuance, any wrinkle to that? The leaders move on. Perhaps. There's different reasons, but that, I could see that happening. What else? Spiritual abuse. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Thinking through the God-given authority that leaders have, then how are they going to carry that out if these virtues are neglected? Same thing with, with us as members. We're just looking at it from the role and the function within the church in that way. Um, somebody in the middle had it. Yeah, Paul again. Can lead to church splits. Same issue, whether it's members or pastors, right? 
I see another hand. Another observation or, yeah, McKenna. Amen. If you didn't hear that, she said leaders aren't perfect. But. Yeah. Very much so. If you didn't hear, she said leaders aren't perfect, but leaders basically should know their Bibles. I think what she's getting at is James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, lest you know you'll be held to a stricter judgment. So there's that reality of responsibility that's on the line as well. Yeah, Mr. Patrick. Potential heresy. Yeah. How come? Yeah. Some. Yeah. Great connection. In fact, if you read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, observe how often the character of false teachers is directly tied to their false teaching. Immorality leads to inconsistent teaching living, which leads to potential heresy. So there's, again, that much more is required because of the role that pastors, elders, shepherds are to have. What we're getting at and making painfully obvious is the need for a church to take these things seriously. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. It's not just the responsibility of the pastors. It's not just the responsibility of the members. We're talking about a congregation and the imperative as to why brothers and sisters in Christ would look at one another and say, I promise that I will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Pastors are saying that. Members are saying that because the congregation is saying, based on our calling, it only makes sense and it's reasonable. Let's, let's look at this last section here, verse 3 of Ephesians, and consider how this is the, really the concern that is to motivate us. This is what it's driving towards. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pause here and just define some terms. Eager. I think we know what we mean there. But do you have a, a word picture in your mind of somebody who's eager? Somebody who's ready to make every effort, to be diligent, to be endeavoring, to to. to be ready to make haste, to not let any opportunity go to waste. They're, they're eager. And then he says to maintain. This is important because he doesn't say create. He doesn't stay establish what doesn't exist, but curate, maintain. Why is that? Because the unity that we have, remember, go back to verse 1. What's the calling? The triune God has brought us into unity with himself. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. The reality of our unity is what Christ accomplishes in uniting us to himself. Remember, when we hear membership, we equate that to union with Christ. And so the unity that we have with one another is because we are united in Christ. So we're not creating unity. God in Christ 
has established it. What we're called to as Christians is to be eager to maintain it. Uh, Think of it this way. This may be helpful to you or maybe not. Just as someone who might be employed as a maintenance worker at a golf course or some office complex or some housing development, they're not the architect. They're not the builder. But they are called and they've been tasked with this this responsibility to ensure that the function and the beauty of that place is maintained. This is the picture of our relationship to one another. I think it's important that Paul doesn't consider uh, consider unity to be a luxury or an option. Like whatever thing you would want to say about this particular church of what they're strong for. They're not really unified. I'll give you that. But look at all this over here. That's not a a category in Paul's mind. Uh, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. Can you be, be able to finish that? Live peaceably with all. As much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So let's press it a little further, though. What sort of unity do we have in mind here? What sort of unity are we talking about? If we're unified in personal preferences, if we're unified around hobbies, uh, if we're unified around political opinions, any unity that is circling around those things in some ways is particularly natural. Think of all the groups, all the associations that unify and seek community around those sort of items. Personal preferences, hobbies, vacation, stage of life, political opinions. The world around us naturally groups into those sort of affinity-based unifying groups. But... If the church, go back to the calling, if the church is actually brought together by the power of the gospel, and the gospel is going into every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, it's going into every economic division, it's going into male, female, slave, free, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, if the gospel is permeating into all of those groups and calling people together, what that means is unification is not going to be and cannot be around natural affinity-based preferences. The unity that we're talking about is a unity in Christ that recognizes a broad diversity of preferences, hobbies, personalities, gender, race, background, expectations. This is what we're getting at here that the unity that we're talking about, that Paul's speaking of, it goes deeper than affinity-based connections because our various affinities run the risk, though, of severing that unity, where we can seek to find unity around things that are just common in the world. Is it that impressive that a church can get a bunch of people in the same building and then break them up into groups that are reflected in the world around us? It's not that impressive. But is it impressive if a church can gather a bunch of people in a congregation from a variety of backgrounds, preferences, political ideas, and opinions, and say, we're one in Christ, brother, sister. The world looks at that and says, I haven't seen that before. That's a different kind of unity 
that we're talking about. Unity doesn't just happen because we're a diverse group of people and our tendency is to prefer ourselves. That's why the exhortation is to be eager to maintain it because Christ has already established it and if we're not eager to maintain it, it's gonna naturally devolve into these fractured groups when we forget the calling to which we've been called with. It's possible, here's what I'm getting at, to maintain unity or if you want to use a current buzzword, build community around something other than the gospel. I'll say that again. It's possible to build unity around something other than the gospel. Churches can be free from strife, generally agreeable and unified, but it might not be around the gospel. If you haven't uh, read this book before, highly recommend it. It's called Compelling Community. Uh, by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlap. Let me just read you a portion from the introduction that teases out a bit of what I'm, what I'm getting at here, and we'll end with this. He says, I'll give you an example. Let's say that a single mother joins the church. Who is she naturally going to build friendships with? Who is naturally going to understand her best? Other single moms, of course. So I encourage her to join a small group for single moms, and sure enough, she quickly integrates into the community and thrives. Mission accomplished, right? Not quite. What occurred is a demographic phenomenon and not necessarily a gospel phenomenon. Single moms gravitate to each other regardless of whether or not the gospel is true. The community is wonderful and helpful, but its existence says nothing about the power of the gospel. In fact, most of the tools we use to build community center on something other than the gospel. He gives some examples. Similar life experience. Single groups, newly married Bible studies, young professional networks, and we build community based on demographic groupings. Similar identity. Cowboy churches, motorcycle churches, artistic churches, and the likes are all gospel-believing churches with something other than the gospel at the core of their identity. Similar cause. Ministry teams for feeding the hungry, helping in elementary school, combating human trafficking, building community on shared passion for God-honoring cause. Similar needs. Program-based churches build community as assembling people into programs based on similarity of their felt needs. I recognize this probably sounds ridiculous. In the space of 100 words, I've critiqued Bible studies for single moms, single groups, and hunger ministries. But stick with me for a minute. Underneath all of those community-building strategies is something we need to expose and examine with fresh eyes. Let's go back to the small group for single moms. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar life experience. Hear that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be with people of similar life experience. It's entirely natural and can be spiritually beneficial. But if this is the sum total of what we call church community or unity, I'm afraid we've built something that wouldn't exist if God didn't. That stings. That is the reality of the unity of what we're talking about. It's not just unity around affinity, but the sort of unity that only exists if God does. And if God exists, then the sort of unity that's possible within a church transcends any sort of unity or community that could exist in the world. And the church is held up to be this manifestation of the glory of God in Christ. And so that's why we're saying within a church covenant, that we will work for and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our shared calling 
It defines our unity, our conduct promotes this unity, and our mutual concern motivates us towards that. And so for good reason, we would say we will work for and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We've come to the top of the hour, which is about to the end of our time, and we don't want to cause any riots or any concerns within our children's Sunday school class, lest there be a lack of unity. And so with that, let me close in prayer. We can be dismissed to go get your kids, and then we can return and anticipate our gathering together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather before our service to consider the truth of your word, and we pray that you would continue to help us to grow in what it means to think through to care for one another as church members. We particularly pray that you would help us in regards to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.